This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Reed Pence. This week, a challenge to public policy on how to get people to eat healthier. It calls into question this idea that all we need for healthy eating is just to plop more grocery stores into food deserts. So what will work in underserved cities when Radio Health Journal returns? I'm Nancy Benson, host of Radio Health Journal. If you enjoy listening to Radio Health Journal, you'll also like our sister show, Viewpoints, which covers a wide array of topics from education to history to the environment. Here's a preview of what they're covering this week on Viewpoints. This is our first in-car system that has AI processing to be able to do license plate reads right from the in-car camera. The rapidly changing realm of police technology. Them. How can we do good as well as doing well? The balance between revenue and being environmentally responsible. I'm Marty Peterson. And I'm Gary Price. These stories in depth this week on your public affairs magazine, Viewpoints. Listen to Viewpoints on your favorite radio station and subscribe and listen to shows anytime on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. You can buy only what's for sale, they say. It's a simple concept that seems to be getting in the way of a healthier diet for millions of Americans. The idea goes like this. People can't eat healthy foods if they're not available to buy. And that's the case in many lower-income neighborhoods. Instead of a supermarket with fresh fruits and vegetables, you get convenience stores with soda, frozen pizza, and Twinkies. Experts call a neighborhood like that a food desert. It's an area or a neighborhood that has no access to affordable and high-quality foods, which we would typically find in a supermarket. That's Dr. Andrea Richardson, a policy researcher at Rand Corporation and lead author of a study closely examining food deserts in the Pittsburgh area. The USDA has some concrete measures where they define it as you know a distance of over one mile to a supermarket, and also they qualify it where residents don't have access to a car or some proportion of the population do not have access to a car. It is true when you look at the data that... People who live in disadvantaged neighborhoods, including neighborhoods that don't have supermarkets, tend to be less healthy and also disadvantaged in other ways. Dr. Hunt Alcott, associate professor of economics at New York University and a senior principal researcher for Microsoft Research, has also studied food deserts. He says it's a fact that people in food deserts have worse diets than other people. What's complex is to understand the causality in that relationship. It could be that not having a supermarket nearby makes you less healthy because you have to shop in a convenience store or a bodega and you just don't have healthy options and so you eat the options that are around. But it could also be true that the sort of set of things that makes an area disadvantaged cause us to be unhealthy and also cause there to be fewer supermarkets. However, Alcott says it's not a sure thing that the poorer diets more common in low-income neighborhoods are driven by a lack of supply. It may be the other way around. It could be that lower demand for healthy food 
is what causes less supply of healthy food. In other words, that in some neighborhoods, people just aren't as interested in eating healthy. And so the types of stores that sell the healthiest food tend not to locate there. So these are all possibilities before we start looking at the data. These are all possibilities as to the sort of complex causal relationship between what we know to be true that the types of people who tend to live in disadvantaged neighborhoods have lower access to grocery stores and also tend to eat less healthy food and also tend to have less healthy lives overall. Whether there really is a cause and effect is important because Alcott says the theory that food deserts drive unhealthy eating undergirds a lot of public policy and millions of dollars in spending. There are a series of policies that I think are organized around one particular view of the causal chain in food deserts. And that view specifically being that if we could just get more healthy foods into food deserts, if we could just plop in a new grocery store into an underserved neighborhood, into a food desert, then people would eat more healthfully. So that's the idea that you know, Michelle Obama has talked about. That's the idea behind the healthy food financing initiative that we have in the U.S. That's the idea behind the proposed Healthy Food Access for All Americans Act. And that's the idea behind the hundreds of millions of dollars in subsidies that the federal government and local governments in the U.S. have offered for people who want to set up grocery stores in underserved areas. Alcott and Richardson's studies test that theory from different perspectives. Alcott looked at food purchases over a wide variety of areas nationwide. Over the last 15 years, over a thousand supermarkets have opened in the U.S. in neighborhoods that had previously been food deserts. So this, this policy assertion is actually something that we're seeing tested thousands of times over in the U.S. over the last 15 years. And so what we did is we actually went back and got a data set from a company called Nielsen, which in addition to keeping track of how much TV we watch, also keeps track of, for about 60,000 households around the country, all the groceries they buy. And so some of these households in the Nielsen data set were indeed living in neighborhoods that had previously been food deserts, but now are no longer a food desert because a grocery store had entered. And so we can see clearly in our data households living in food deserts and then what happens when we get what policymakers want, which is a grocery store opening up. What Alcott found casts doubt on the food desert theory. He says when a new supermarket opens nearby, it doesn't change what people buy. They just buy it closer to home. When you look at people who live in zip codes with no supermarkets, so these are definitely food deserts. There's no supermarket in the entire zip code. Those people still buy 85% of their groceries from supermarkets. And it's because in America we have cars. And even many low-income people have cars or travel in some way to the grocery store, often outside the neighborhood. And so what does this mean? It means when a new grocery store opens up in your neighborhood, you don't have to travel as far because now you have a supermarket that's right near you. And so that's good for you. So that's really good for you. But we shouldn't think that your choice set is any different. You go from shopping in a far away supermarket 
to a nearby supermarket. Richardson, meanwhile, looked at a much wider variety of changes in a limited number of food deserts. She finds that while purchases don't change when a grocery store moves in, what people eat does change. Our group has been studying two neighborhoods in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, that were both demographically similar and low income. Neither one of them had a supermarket, and one was introduced to a new supermarket back in 2013. So we were able to look at what exactly happened to those residents and compare the changes in diet behaviors between the two neighborhoods. And what we found is that the intervention neighborhood that receives a new supermarket, those residents did show improvements in their dietary behaviors significantly compared to the comparison neighborhood. But what's interesting is that it didn't have anything to do with the residents using the new store. So this begs the question, well, what happened? And that's what we're trying to investigate further now by looking at broader impacts on the neighborhood because this wasn't a lab situation. There's lots of other things going on in both neighborhoods. But in the neighborhood where the supermarket moved in, things changed very quickly. Health there was better. Within a year, residents had 10% fewer new cases of high cholesterol. Economics got better, too. There were improvements in food insecurity, as well as SNAP, or, you know, formerly known as food stamps. And then we also saw some improvements in health. But the strongest improvements really were with those economic indicators. And so the theory could be that as their economic status improved, that could translate into more resources to make healthier choices. So while there are benefits to adding a supermarket in a food desert, they're not what experts were driving at. Yet the ones they've gotten may be even more valuable and far-reaching. We do think that it, supermarkets not only represent access to food, but they also represent an economic vitality and investment into neighborhoods. We found there were other economic investments in the Hill District, in the intervention neighborhood, that could have spurred more revitalization. So our theory is that there might have been indirect impacts of this neighborhood revitalization that was either catalyzed by the opening of the new store or the new store was part of this sort of investment package that was happening to understand that there might have been indirect impacts through neighborhood satisfaction, reduced stress, reduced hopelessness. Some of the residents might have felt a lot more empowered and hopeful about where they lived as they saw other things changing around them. Clearly, we need to know more about why people buy the foods they do and eat the foods they do. If a low supply of healthy foods doesn't explain the poorer diets of food deserts, what does? Alcott suspects much of the influence is intergenerational. We tend to eat what we grew up with. But Richardson says even while we shop, our tastes are manipulated. Within stores, there's a lot of different marketing strategies that do push people to try to buy foods that are probably not as healthy. So I think there's a lot of room to improve, both within cross-neighborhoods, what types of food resources are available, including restaurants. Those are another driver of dietary behaviors. And also within stores, what are available and how do we market to people? A lot of purchasing happens on impulse. And so you can imagine that there's quite a bit of impulse buying of 
junk food. Many food deserts are also what are known as food swamps, where unhealthy food options like fast food often outnumber healthy options four to one. So if we're trying to get people to eat healthier, it's not just supermarkets we have to think about. There's also a lot of places where you can buy food, including fast food restaurants, including, you know, non-food outlet type stores like Home Depot sells food, convenience stores, pharmacies. So I think there's food everywhere. There's an abundance of opportunities to buy unhealthy food. So it's important to consider the whole package of a neighborhood when you're considering how do we improve the availability of food so that people make better choices. All of this doesn't mean that the food desert theory and programs to bring in grocery stores are unworthy. Their value is just different, and we need to look through a wider lens. I think these programs come from a good place. We see disadvantage for individuals and for neighborhoods, and we want to do what we can to level the playing field, to make disadvantaged places less disadvantaged. What our research is showing is that these well-intended efforts don't have one of the desired outcomes. They may have other desired outcomes. They give us a place to gather as a community. They'll generate, any supermarket generates new jobs, local pride, this sort of thing. But they don't have the specific desired outcome of helping people to eat healthier, at least over the few years after they open. However, Alcott says these other benefits may well be worth it. Yet if what we're after is business development, jobs, and a sense of community in disadvantaged neighborhoods, it may be that new grocery stores aren't the best way to do it. Notably, Richardson says in spite of all the positives of the new supermarket in the Hill neighborhood in Pittsburgh, the store ended up closing just a few years later. Why the store failed and what happened when it did are a likely target for further research. You can find out more about all of our guests on our website, RadioHealthJournal.org. I'm Reed Pence. About a million Americans have Parkinson's disease, and many are treated with levodopa carbidopa therapy, but about half of them will experience off episodes when Parkinson's disease symptoms return between doses of these medications. The FDA has approved Norian's Istradefalon, a prescription medicine used with levodopa and carbidopa to treat adults with Parkinson's disease experiencing off episodes. Dr. Robert Hauser of the University of South Florida says, During off episodes, symptoms including difficulty walking return, which can impact patients. Nurians is the first and only treatment of its kind that works differently. In clinical trials, Nurians significantly decreased the amount of off time the patients experienced and increased the amount of time patients had good symptom control between doses. Norians may cause serious side effects, including uncontrolled sudden movements, dyskinesia, hallucinations, and other symptoms of psychosis, as well as compulsive behaviors and an inability to control them. The more common side effects of Norians include uncontrolled movements, dyskinesia, dizziness, constipation, nausea, hallucinations, and problems sleeping, insomnia. If you or your family notice that you are developing any new or unusual symptoms or behaviors, talk to your health care provider. These are not all the possible side effects of Norian's. Call your doctor for medical advice about side effects. You may report side effects to FDA at 1-800-FDA-1088. Before you take Norian's, tell your health care provider about all your medical conditions. 
including if you have a history of dyskinesia, have reduced liver function, and smoke cigarettes or use other tobacco products. Tell your healthcare provider about all the medicines you take, including prescription and over the counter medicines, vitamins, and herbal supplements. Norians may affect the way other medicines work, and other medicines may affect how Norians works. To get more information about Norians, consumers can call 1 800 N O U R I A N Z or go to www.norians.com. Brought to you by Kioa Kieran. And that's Radio Health Journal for this week. Radio Health Journal is a production of MediaTracks Communications. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram to learn more. And check Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify for a library of past programs. Plus, you'll always find previous segments and information about our guests at RadioHealthJournal.org. Join us again next week for another edition of Radio Health Journal. Coming up next week on Radio Health Journal... It affects their appearance in most cases. It affects their emotional state. It affects their reproductive potential. It's really a life-changing and often devastating condition. The many symptoms of polycystic ovary syndrome. Then the dreams of children in poverty. They all want to be something when they're kids. And the trajectory is blocked for poor children and minority children and is wide open for many affluent children who are part of the mainstream. All that and more on Radio Health Journal.